everyone. Welcome to the Kapow Radio Show on the Kapow Radio Show Network, sponsored by FifthHookMedia.com. FifthHookMedia.com, where you can go and peruse some of the books we've written, Demons in My Marriage Bed, True Story of Spiritual Warfare, and Eyes to See Unseen Enemy. There's Christianity of Blasphemy on there, uh, Martial Arts, A Biblical Perspective. There's also some swag there's some t-shirts, books, things like that. There's uh, some CDs. There's um, Calvary, Voices of Calvary Choir CD on there. Uh, just check it out, fifthhookmedia.com. It's a, it's a whole store waiting for your perusal. Incredible. Anyway, last week, I uh, told you that we weren't going to do a show every week unless God really laid something on our heart because there's no sense in wasting your time and our time just talking about anything or just entertaining something like that so fortunately last week something came to my little pea brain so which is nice and i'm going to share that with you so as long as something comes in my little pea brain from the lord i'm going to share it now this is kind of weird because in the morning hours of august 9th i'm going to sleep this happens this happens to me i mean it's not obviously it's not all the time but it, it does happen I, I, it's not like a dream, It's but it almost is. I mean, it's almost a teaching or somebody talking to me in my sleep type of thing. So I hear, the best way I can describe it, I hear this inner voice or it's like a teaching while I'm asleep. And it was pointing out the fact that I, I usually rant and rave and rail against false teaching and heresy while exposing it and pointing out the flaws. But that, I should sometimes at least try to actually teach the proper biblical doctrine instead of always just telling uh, and yelling about the false doctrines, right? So it made perfect sense to me in my sleep. But of course, once you awake, it's a lot harder to do. So, but anyway, as I'm asleep, if I'm asleep, this comes to me, right? It's like, okay. You complain, 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 rant and rail, and you point out, this is false, this is unbiblical, blah, blah, blah. Well, why don't you just take the time and teach some proper doctrine, biblical doctrine? Okay. So then, I'm still asleep. The word soteriology comes into my brain. Soteriology. It's amazing, because this is a word that I never use. It's not anywhere near my skull at any time of the day, soteriology. And the last time I actually heard or studied this word or studied soteriology was years ago when I was in university, when I was studying systematic theology and and Bible. So I knew that the Holy Spirit wanted, wanted us to teach on this topic, soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation. It's the doctrine of salvation. All right. So that's what we're going to talk about in a true biblical sense. We're going to go all the way down. We're going to go all the way down back into time to the very first century, to the very first church, to the very first Christians. I mean the first Christians. And we're going to explore what soteriology meant for them, what salvation meant for them what was required for salvation to Christ Jesus. And hopefully when we get done, we're going to answer some of these questions that you might have and kind of clarify some things. And we're also going to be uplifted in the fact that we are saved through Jesus Christ through our faith. And it's really kind of cool. It's so simple and basic that it's been twisted and messed with and hidden and totally apostatized, apostatized now. All right. So in my sleep, this is what came to me. Soteriology. (laughs) So you know what I mean? So you test the spirits, right? But there's no way Satan or any demons are going to put that in your brain and go, Hey, I got a good deception. Teach people about the salvation through Jesus Christ. You know, that's, that's not satanic. So those kind of things pop in my head or if those ever pop in your head, some weird things, those are designed to get your attention. 
Otherwise, you may not remember the dream or you may not remember the teaching. That's why sometimes there'll be weird people or a, a weird setting, something in your dream that causes you to remember it upon awakening. It it may not have anything to do with that person or that setting or that situation. It's just there so that you will remember. It's kind of like a little tool the spirit uses on our little human brains, right? Well, last Monday... Uh, Linda and I fellowshiped with our very good friends and our neighbors, John and Janie. And we got to discussing the song, which was written by Odin Fong. It's the song that we play at the end of the show on Mondays. We always play this, this song. And it's called All I Know is Jesus Christ and Him Crucified for Me. And it was, I, I explained to you, you know, several months ago why I love this song. I remember hearing it when I was a teenager going to Calvary Chapel at Costa Mesa and listening to Odin Fong sing this song in, in his band. And um, it was just beautiful. Of course, I hadn't heard it in, you know, years, you know. And then recently I went and I looked up YouTube and I found out that they had all these old Maranatha songs on there. And this was one of them. So I grabbed it and it was, um, it's great. And so I just play it after each show all the time because what it does, it sums everything up. It sums everything up. So we were having this conversation with John and Janie and we started talking about this song and Janie had mentioned that she just loves this song. You know, when she hears it, she says it's like played just for her. You know, that's how she feels like you just played it just for me. And she always listens to the entire song to the end of the show through the whole thing, which which really blew my mind because I know most people, I mean, you might listen to it once then afterwards at the end of the show, you go, well, it's the end. And so then you click it off, but she actually listens to it the whole, the whole time. And, um, and it was because like she said, it sums everything up that the, the prior show had just discussed. So no matter what the topic, it's always our salvation through Jesus Christ that matters most always. So we thought it would be a good idea to play the actual audio of Odin Fong's testimony and why that song he wrote has so much meaning. So after we get done with this teaching or in between the teaching sometime, I'm going to play the clip. It's about a 10 minute clip. It's a fantastic testimony and it goes right with this teaching because you will see the simplicity of salvation and you'll see soteriology at its finest and you will see what it means to have a first century salvation. Some of the things I want to point out that you will hear in this testimony is that how Odin saw Jesus in his darkest time, Odin's darkest time, not Jesus' darkest time, Odin's darkest time. He saw Jesus in that very dark time and how he cried out and he called out on the name of the Lord. You'll also hear how he repented and he was baptized right then and there in the name of Christ. We're going to talk about the submission and washing and renewal, baptism in Christ. We are not talking water baptism. And I'm going to explain that. We're talking a baptism in Christ. Think of Jesus as water. You're baptized and washed in Jesus as water. John's baptism, John the Baptist, was a forerunner. It was simply a forerunner of the real thing to come. I'm going to get into that. I don't want to get ahead of myself right now, but it may help you explain a lot of things to yourself about water baptism and the importance of water baptism. But I am talking about the baptism in Christ, not water baptism, not a ritual, not an ordinance. All right. Um, you're going to hear how he was never the same after that experience. And it's a perfect example perfect example of a first century soteriology. Jesus having revealed himself to Odin Fong in a miraculous way, and then Odin exercising his free will to repent and then be baptized in that name. Absolutely amazing. So let's take a short commercial break, and then we're going to be right back with soteriology, the very first salvation, the first century salvation, and we're going to break it all down. It's going to be kind of exciting. 
I just finished reading Demons in My Marriage Bed, a true story of spiritual warfare written by Paul and Linda Villanueva, and I highly recommend it to all Kingdom Against Powers of Wickedness radio listeners. This book is about saving your marriage from destruction. It is a true and vivid account about adultery, witchcraft, curses, spells, and evil spirits, all attempting to dismantle and annihilate lives. This is an excellent training manual for building a stronger marriage by exposing the tactics your enemies use against you. Ultimately, the book glorifies the transformational power of God through submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is a good thing. Demons in My Marriage Bed from all online digital retailers, such as Amazon.com and Apple iBooks, FifthHookMedia.com. That is F-I-F-T-H-O-O-K-Media.com. Demons in My Marriage Bed, a true story of spiritual warfare, changed the way my spouse and I conduct spiritual battle and has increased our alertness level to the tactics of Satan. Please do not be fooled that such things cannot happen to you. Rather, get prepared and become the spiritual warrior needed to overcome in these perilous times in which we all live. God bless you all. Okay, welcome back. Soteriology is theology, all right? It's part of systematic theology. As I mentioned before, uh, when I was in university, I studied biblical studies and uh, systematic theology. Systematic theology is just a term applied to theology, doctrines of the Bible, and it's systemized, so it makes sense. So, in other words, you can't just turn to one book of the Bible and go, oh, this book tells me everything about God. Oh, I'll go to Isaiah. It tells me everything about angels. Oh, I'll go here. It tells me everything about the church. Oh, I'll go here. It tells me everything about Christ. So, it's these doctrines are throughout the Word of God. And so, soteriology is just part of one of those doctrines. It's the doctrine of salvation, and they're systemized. So, these scriptures are systemized. That's what systematic theology is, okay? And it is, the soteriology is the end of all other doctrines. And what I mean by that is that they all lead to the doctrine of salvation. If you're studying the doctrine of God, or you're studying the doctrine of angels, you're studying the doctrine of church, or whatever you're studying it all leads to the doctrine of salvation because that's the coup de gras. All right. It is the study of the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, many scholars, many, many scholars have fought over the centuries, over different aspects of like when and how salvation occurs, who or who is not predetermined for salvation and the election of some over the destruction of others. I mean, it gets crazy. The Calvinists argue with the Armenians. The Armenians argue with the Calvinists. You have five points of Calvinism, tulip, right? In response to far five points of Armenian, Armenianism, you know, and they're all beard scratchers. And then they create all kinds of confusion in the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. It's just men bringing in philosophy and then they just mess everything up. These are philosophical debates, right? They're philosophical debates. I'm not here to say if you're a Calvinist or you're an Armenian, one is going to go to hell, one's saved, because that's not the case. I just say they're people that are focused on the wrong things and that they complicate things and they mess up and confuse the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. They're philosophical debates. We don't want to get into those things, right? I mean, it can get crazy. What we want to show you is the doctrine of salvation, not through the lens of Calvinism or through the lens of Arminianism. We want to show you the doctrine of salvation through, oh, guess what? The lens of the first century people who first received it, how it happened and what role they had to play in it. We want to explore what it really means to get saved in a biblical sense, not a Calvinistic sense or an Armenian sense, but in a biblical sense. Some of these scholars get so crazy, so wrapped up. Well, for example, there there are some on the Calvinist side that believe God created souls and predetermined which souls would be saved and which ones would go to hell, Right? And he did this before he even did creation. And then he makes creation and puts those souls into humankind, knowing full well that he was creating those who were just going to burn in hell. 
And then he provides a way for salvation to those who he had already predetermined that were going to be saved. Now, does that sound like a psychotic God or what? I mean, that is psychosis. That's nuts. That's an actual theory. That's actual a theology and a philosophy. And of course, you know, it's extreme. And then on the other side, you have some on the Calvinist side that believe, well, God created man. Um, God allowed the fall. And at the fall, then he determined what souls would be predestined for salvation and those non-elites who would just die and go to hell, no matter what you did. And of course, people that teach this stuff, they're always the elite. They're always ones that were selected. They always have um, that smugness about them that they were predetermined to be saved. (laughs) Otherwise, they wouldn't be teaching this stuff, right? Uh, So the rest of the people who are predetermined to go to hell can just, well, whatever. We still got to preach the gospel to them because we don't know who they are. Anyway, it just goes nuts. We are not talking about that today. We're going to talk about salvation in the biblical sense. So let's go to Acts, the second chapter of Acts, right? Let's go there. And I want to read to you Acts 2, 5. Verse 5 says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Acts 2, 13 reads, Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Okay, I'm assuming most of you know what this narrative about. It's the second chapter of Acts. They're speaking in glossolalia. They're speaking in known languages to those people from every nation to hear. And those men are hearing the disciples praising God in their own tongues, their own languages. It's a miracle that's taking place. So it gets their attention. So some are mocking saying, oh, these guys are drunk. And then, you know, others are just, you know, like, what? What the heck? But they're devout men at Jerusalem during the Passover. So the place is packed out of every nation, right? So this is what's going on. So that narrative right there lists two types of listeners. One, there's devout men. Two, there's mockers. But it does not say which ones actually believed in the gospel message. Now, this is amazing. See, because we do not know. We do not know that the very first hearers of the gospel uh, were mockers or devout Jews or, or both or a mixture, right? Perhaps even some of the mockers, after hearing the explanation of what was happening, also turned to Christ for salvation. There's probably a great probability that this was the case. So it's important to realize the person hearing the gospel does not determine through their own salvation. They don't determine their own salvation by either being devout or being a mocker. Salvation is determined by calling out to the Lord, repenting and being submerged into him for remission of sins. That's what does it. The point I'm trying to make is that there were both devout men and there were mockers. And to say only the devout men received the message and the, and the mockers didn't, would be ludicrous. You can't say that. That's It doesn't say that in the scripture. Later on, we'll see that many, 3,000 of them were baptized in the Lord after hearing the gospel message. These are the first. So notice that the men were drawn to the messengers, the disciples of the gospel. They were drawn to the messengers of the gospel by the miracle of tongues. And then later on, people continued to be drawn through the miracles of healing and even the deaths of a husband and wife team that lied to the Holy Spirit. Think about that. That was a miracle. So in the first century, the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ was always, always interconnected with the miracles. Large miracle services like we see today, and I'm speaking like Benny Hinn, um, Bill Johnson's church, you know, in Reading, you got all these miracles and all this supernatural stuff. 
large miracle services that focus on the miracles. They just focus on miracles. They focus on healing. They focus on the supernatural. Without producing true disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel message, guess what? It's not biblical. It's not biblical. Miracles always followed in conjunction with, interconnected with a gospel message. The primary aim in the first century was always, always salvation. And the miracles followed as a confirmation of that salvation message. It was never the other way around. So the Holy Spirit gave the healing or the miracles as a sign that what God's servants were saying about the salvation through Jesus was in fact from him. The Jews, as we know, were always looking for a sign. So as to, um, as to if something was from God or if it was not, you see, it was a confirmation by the Holy Spirit. So when you see a Benny Hinn or, um, like I say, a Bill Johnson's church, and they're doing gold dust and feathers and weird things are happening and, and people are drawn to the supernatural. They're not made to be true disciples of Christ. They're not baptized in Christ. This is demonic. It's a, it's a false Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. Miracles were always associated with the gospel message. That's the only reason they existed. And they were done by the Holy Spirit, not by the man. They were done by the Holy Spirit, and it was to confirm that what they were saying was, in fact, from God. All right? So some say, there are some people today say that miracles and the gifts of the Spirit have ceased for today. These people are called cessationists because they believe these things have ceased. They're cessationists. But let me tell you, miracles have not ceased, my people. They have not ceased. The gospel of Christ is what has ceased. That's why we don't see miracles like this in our Western religion. Because the organized religious culture has ceased from presenting the salvation message. There are no healings or miracles either in confirmation of that message anymore. Because they're not preaching the gospel, it's not being confirmed. So in other countries... Outside of the West, like in Africa and some other like third world countries, you can still see miracles and healings associated with the gospel message. Some people are still raised from the dead in those countries. But the West, our westernized church, has become apostate from the truth. And that's that's just the sad state we're in. That's why you don't see it. So that's why you have cessationists. They don't see the miracles. There's a reason why they don't see the miracles. They, they have no faith in Christ. They're not preaching the gospel anymore. The church quit evangelizing in the biblical sense. So we're not going to talk about that because I always talk about that. Let's go back to Acts. So what can we do today? What can we do today in the gospel message associated with miracles? What can we do today? Well, this is just one thought. That in today's world, there's many people, and you, you know some of them. You're around many of them at work or driving on the road with them or they're part of your family. Many people are, are just, they're mean. They're cruel. So many of, the, of our generation is narcissistic. They're egocentric, same thing. They're bullies. They're, they're weird. Some have tendencies. They're, they're, they're like psychopaths or sociopaths. They care about nothing but themselves. They have no love for any other human being. I mean, they are sociopath. And in this kind of world, and there are also other people who are just really hurt. I mean, they're really broken. They may not be mean. They may not be narcissistic. They may not be sociopaths or psychopaths, but they're broken people. They've just been through hell and they're just broke. And when you live in a world like that, a Christian, a Christian walking in the spirit and following biblical principles 
And having the Holy Spirit in their lives can really display the miracle, and it's a miracle, of God's love operating in their lives toward other people. I want that to sink in. It's not something you do. It's just it's it's just like Peter didn't heal the guy at the gate beautiful. He just said, hey, silver and gold, I don't have any, but what I have, I can give to you. Get up. Paul uh, did not heal the crippled guy um, through his own. He just said, um, he looked at him and he saw that he had faith unto salvation. He says, get up in the name of Jesus Christ. These people in the first century, Paul and Peter, the miracle workers, they, they did not do that on their own. The Holy Spirit did it through them. They were just the vessels. Well, it's the same thing. If you have Christ living in you and the Holy Spirit's in, in you, there's a love, there's a character of Christ in there, and it it should be operating in your life toward other people. And that, I mean, folks, look at that. That's a miracle because people without the love of Christ can't have that towards a bully, a narcissist, an ego, a psychopath, or a sociopath. And so people are still drawn to that miracle. They're drawn to that miracle of Christ's love in you. And they're drawn to that miracles of the spirit in order to hear the message of salvation. It can be accompanied by the message of salvation, this love of Christ in you shown towards others. It can open up those opportunities. Having a real love in this world is a total miracle, man, because this world is messed up. And it's sad to say that because genuine love is so rare and love has grown so cold that the display of Christ's character will draw people to you. And then perhaps the Holy Spirit can open up your mouth and that salvation message can be explained. So don't think miracles have ceased or just don't look for, oh, I got to go heal people or I got to do this or do that to draw people to me. It's not sensational. It's not a show. It could be that subtle and simple as displaying the love of Christ in you. It always reminds you of the scripture when they were stoning Stephen. You know, he has a face like a man, but when they're stoning him, he looked like an angel. Face like an angel. What does that mean to have a face like an angel? I can only imagine that the love of God was just shining through him. And it's a different look. It's a different look in your eye. You have a different look. Let's move on. Acts, second chapter, 16 through 43. All right, this, I want you to know, these are the very first Christians who got saved outside of the uh, the tight disciples and, uh, and apostles that were saved under Jesus Christ and his teaching. This is what we're going to look at. These men that we're, that we're going to now study, these devout Jews, these men were the first to get saved outside of Jesus' close disciples and his followers. They're, they're the very first. These are the first Christians. This is the first event of salvation. And so to return to the biblical requirements of salvation, this story has as its core the very foundations of our salvation doctrine. All right? That's why I'm not going to talk about Calvinism and Armenianism. I'm going to go right to the Bible. I don't care what the scholars say. I care what the Word of God says. This is also the very beginning of the church in a biblical sense, which looks nothing and behaves nothing like the organizations that we call by the same name today. Okay, this is the beginning of it. This is the first century salvation. It's a very real soteriology. All right. Okay. Acts chapter 2, 16 through 43. So the the mockers said, oh, these guys are drunk. What do we do? And then Peter stands up and he says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness 
and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Stop. Peter is explaining that what they're hearing is not drunkenness. It's, it's not crazy men just speaking different languages. What, there are, what the miracle they're experiencing is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. It's this is that. This is that. And Peter's clearly saying they're living in the last days. It shall come to pass in the last days that God will do all these things. He's going to pour out his spirit. They're going to dream dreams. They're going to prophesy. He's going to show wonders in the heaven, signs in the earth, blood and favor of smoke. And then the sun's going to be turned in darkness and the moon and blood before the great notable day of the Lord. That's what I'm waiting for because everything else has is, is, is happened and happening. All right. And the important thing in verse 21, and it shall come to pass, he's still quoting Joel, that whosoever shall call on his name, the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's saying, this is that which the prophet Joel have prophesied. This is that happening. And then he goes on and he explains in the gospel message here, here's the first gospel message. Here's the to the first Christians who, who will receive it. He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Stop. He is saying that God approved Jesus among them. How? by miracles, wonders, and signs. That's why I say the gospel message always points to Jesus Christ. Miracles always point to Jesus Christ. Miracles, signs, and wonders, all this crazy stuff cannot stand on its own. It's only in conjunction with pointing to salvation through Jesus Christ, which is primary. Miracles and signs and wonders are always secondary to confirm that. God approved Jesus Christ among them through the miracles. I shall continue. All right. Him, talking about Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So God allowed it. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You killed Jesus, the one approved by God. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So Peter is saying, God approved of this man among you. You saw all the miracles. You saw this stuff. And then God allowed you guys to take him and kill him. But God raised him from the dead. Then Peter goes on and explains the resurrection. He says in verse 25, for David speaks Concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer mine, thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. That's from Psalms. So Peter continues, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. So David can't be talking about himself. Verse 30, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He's seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Verse 32, that Jesus, this Jesus, hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Stop. 
he goes and explains the prophecies of David and saying, David can't be talking about himself. David's dead. Through prophecy, David is foreseeing Christ and talking about his resurrection. Now, the first century Jew, devout men listening to this are aware of the prophecies. They've been waiting for their Messiah. They've been waiting for this salvation through a Messiah. Okay? They've been waiting for this. And Peter's saying, this is that. So what you hear today, this miracle you hear today, this is that. This is those last days. This is the end of the Mosaic law of the Jewish days. And this now begins the Messianic kingdom. These are the last days before the end of time, before it's all consummated. So Peter continues. He says, In verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, had received of the Father the promises of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, we come to the response of that gospel message, which is so important. Because in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? This is really important. What shall we do? So after they are drawn to this miracle of tongues, a uh, languages that they hear in their own native tongues, praising and glorifying God. They are then told that what's going on, this is that spoken of by one of our prophets. And then Peter explains who this Jesus really is. And after they hear that gospel message, they say, what shall we do? Then Peter says unto them, it's important, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. There it is. And we're going to talk about the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not water baptism, people. That's not part of salvation. You don't need to get dunked in water to be saved. That's an ordinance of the church. It's a ritual of the church. There are denominations that call themselves Baptists. There's Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, First Fire, Mountain Breathing Baptist, this Baptist, Baptist. They're so focused on baptizing in water, they've they've missed out on the salvation of Christ. I mean, think about it. Why are you called Baptist any more than someone should be called Eucharist? I'm the Church of the Eucharist. I just concentrate on the Eucharist. It doesn't make sense. If you're going to form a denomination, why don't you just call yourself Salvationist? Why don't you just concentrate on the salvation and the gospel of Christ rather than an ordinance and a ritual? I don't, I don't get it, but it's confusion. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't say baptized in water, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? For the remission of sins. Can water take away your sins? Can water take away your sins? No, it cannot. There is no miracle in water that washes you clean. Only the washing of Jesus Christ can make you clean. That's what he means. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's interesting that the same Baptist people don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in speaking in tongues and speaking um, or other gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it? Just a little side note when it comes to denominations. I'm not just picking on the Baptists. They're all screwy. And he did, they're just screwy. Verse 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children. What promise is that? The promise 
of the Holy Ghost. This is huge to them. You're actually, God's going to come and dwell within you. You're going to be the temple. He's actually going to dwell within you. This is huge. The promise is, is given to you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Is that you? Yeah, it's you. So why would a denomination say that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased? Why? If the promise is unto you, the first century Jews, and to their children, and to all that are far off, as even as many as the Lord, our God shall call. Have you been called? Are you saved? Then the promises are for you. So why would somebody say that they're not? And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Verse 37 is packed with everything we need to know. 37 through 39, packed with everything we need to know. In verse 41, then they that gladly received his word, so there were some that didn't, but they that gladly received his word were baptized. And this always confuses the scholars. I love this. Well, how were they baptized? How were 3,000 people? There was no water. They didn't have to go all the way to Jordan. And then they'll get wet. And I don't get it. And then they have to have a change of clothes and their hair. What are they going to do? You know, and they're all nutted up because they just focused on water baptism, man. Because, see, when you deny the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches you all things about truth. You don't need a theology degree. You don't need to be a scholar. You need the Holy Spirit in order to understand spiritual things. The Bible is a spiritual book. It's written spiritually by inspiration. So without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get it. That's why you form a denomination called the Baptist. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's a lot of people. 3,000 people. 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine. And guess what? And fellowship. When's the last time you you continued steadfastly in doctrine with your pastor and in fellowship with him and breaking bread with, with him and the, and the church leaders and oh, also in prayer? When's the last time that happened? Or did you just see him last Sunday and then he said, go your way and blah, blah, blah? Well, yeah, because it's organized religion. But in the first century, it wasn't like that. They continued steadfastly. They were learning doctrine and they were fellowshipping learning doctrine they were eating together and they were praying and fear that's right fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles you see why those signs and wonders were done because it was drawing people to the gospel message it was confirming what they were saying was from god all right so let's break this down The very first salvation consists of, number one, call out on the name of the Lord. It's just like what Peter was saying, Joel, when he quoted Joel. And he said, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call out on the name of the Lord to be saved. And then I want you to notice that in verse 37, the men said, when they were pricked in their hearts, they were convicted, the Holy Spirit drew them. What did they say? What shall we do? That's the calling out on the name. That's the calling out on the name. What shall we do? Number two, repent. What does Peter say? Repent. Number two, repent. It doesn't say continue doing whatever you're going to do. Continue believing in whatever you're going to believe. Repent means to turn away from one direction and go another. Repent. Repent from what? If they're devout Jews, they're devout Jews. What are they repenting from? Well, they're repenting from killing the Lord Jesus Christ out of ignorance. They're repenting from not believing who he was and turning him over to authorities to have him killed. They're repenting of those things. They're repenting of not recognizing the Messiah. They're going the other way now, and they recognize Jesus as their Messiah, all right? In our case, And in people's case today in the modern day church, they need to repent of continued sin. You cannot, you cannot continue to be a homosexual or a lesbian and 
be a Christian in a biblical sense. You can be a lesbian and a Christian, I mean a lesbian and a homosexual, and come to Christ, but you need to repent then. If you're a murderer or a tax evader or a cheater or a liar, you have to repent and change. The the Holy Spirit changes you, but you have to repent of those things that are displeasing to God. You can't continue to practice sin. You call out on the name of the Lord, but it doesn't stop there. It's repentance. Number three. Okay, I'm going to spend some time on this one. Number three, Peter says, and be baptized in the name of Christ. Baptized in the name slash character slash authority of Jesus, not water. Water can't save you, folks. No bapt- Don't be a Baptist. Don't be a Baptist. Don't start a whole denomination and then split up and make all kinds of million denominations off that denomination and focus on water. Water's not going to do it. Okay. Imagine Jesus as water. Right now, just imagine, replace the word water with Jesus, but just think of Jesus as a, as a big lake of water. Jesus water. Imagine Jesus as water. Jesus and water, same thing. Imagine that in your head. So just like to be baptized in water is to be what? Submerged into it. To be baptized in Christ is to what? Be submerged into him. You get it? You're submerged into him. You're washed by him. You're cleansed by him just as if he were water. It's not water. He's Jesus. But you're baptized in him as if he were water. Now, let me let me just clarify. I'm not against baptism. Get baptized. I've been baptized several times. Get baptized. You feel the Lord's putting that on your heart or whatever. You're a new Christian. You want to get baptized. You want to show a public display that you, you know, you go down as a sinner and resurrect. Fine. Do that. If you don't have anybody to baptize you, you can do it in your own swimming pool. You don't have a swimming pool. Go rent a, a hotel room. Go in their swimming pool and dunk yourself and, and say in the name of Jesus. Fine. Do that. But water baptism doesn't, is not part of salvation. That doesn't, um, Take away your sins. Only Jesus does. You have to be baptized in Christ. What does that mean? Repentance and follow him and say, Lord, my life is yours. Not 80% and not 90%. 100%. Everything. I am yours. I am your vessel. Do with, with me what you wilt. You're baptized in him. Learn the doctrines. Learn the ways of God, of Christ. Walk in the spirit. That's what it means. Okay. Water, water was the forerunner symbol of the real thing in Christ. This is what the scriptures teach. It was a forerunner. Why do we concentrate on water? This baptism into Jesus is for the remissions of sins, is what Peter says. For the remission of sins. Water can't change sins. Only Jesus can. So this is not John's baptism. John the Baptist. This is not John's baptism into the water, which was a forerunner and a sign pointing to the real thing, the real thing, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, for years, many scholars have scratched their beards for centuries over this. Here's what they say. How could 3,000 people go from Jerusalem to a body of water large enough to dunk all of them in one day? And then they begin to speculate, you know, because now so what they do is they, they do geographically and they go, well, how far was the Jordan? And that would be so many kilometers and how far there's no way 3000 people. There was how many people, even if there was 12 disciples, of course, there was only 11 there. How could they possibly do 3000 people? And so there must be something wrong. And they just go round and round because they think baptism is H2O. And they speculate and then they go, well, perhaps they were sprinkled with water. Can you imagine sprinkling water on 3,000 people? Can you imagine how hard that would be? Just 3,000 people lined up in Jerusalem. It's Passover. It's crazy. It's The streets are packed, and you're sprinkling 3,000 people in order for them to get saved. It's ludicrous. Forget the water aspect of this. Forget the water aspect of salvation. What Peter is talking about here, what God is telling you today, 
This is the real baptism in Christ. It is, it is faith in him. That's what it means to be baptized in Christ. I believe faith in Christ. He is my Lord, my Savior. He is God made flesh, the Mashiach. It's all wrapped up in him. This is the baptism in Christ. He in you, in you, in him. Like water. It's not water. So although I broke this down into three steps, they're like all one and simultaneous. Simultaneous. <laughs> Can't even talk anymore. One calls out to Jesus, right? And then one repents and then one is washed by him all at the same moment. It's not like, okay, I'm going to do this and then the next day I'm going to do this and the next day. It's like it all happens. Yet the three distinct events, they must take place for salvation to occur. They have to take place. You have to call on God. You have to repent and you have to be baptized in his name or you're not saved. There could be no salvation outside of the name of Jesus. That's why I mean you you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus, not dunked in water in the name of Jesus, baptized in the authority, character, and name of Jesus. So one must call out on that name for salvation. There could be no salvation without repentance, a turning away from the old to the new, a turning away from commitment, from practice sin and displeasing God to not practicing sin and pleasing God. And there could be no salvation without being utterly washed, utterly cleansed, utterly submerged into the waters of Christ or baptized into his name. You get it? Because it's beautiful. And here's the immediate result of a salvation, of a soteriology in the first century. The very first people, the very first Christians, what happened to them? They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's in effect today. It never ceased. The gift of the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's the beauty of God tabernacling with man. He dwells among you now, not in some temple that man builds. It's fabulous. It's unfathomable what this means. And then one saves themselves or removes themselves from an untoward generation. The world, the flesh, and the Satan. Remove yourself from that. That goes right with repentance, right? These are the results. And then here's another result of salvation. One continues steadfastly. You know what that means, steadfastly? It means continuously. You're doing it all the time. You continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines. Where do you get the apostles' doctrines? From the word of God. The Holy Spirit guiding you into all truth. That's where you get it. They also have fellowship with the apostles. They were eating together. They were praying together. This is done through the reading and studying of God's word. You digest the word. You digest God's words into your minds, into your spirits, and through praying to God, just as the apostles prayed to God. That's how you do it. And then you develop an awe of God, and miracles in your lives still exist. You will see miracles in your lives. And what we see here. What we see here in the first century is all about Jesus. There are no organizations to join. There's no worship teams to sing with. There's no keeping a sinful lifestyle. There's no doing what the world does. There's no elite pastors or ministers ignoring the saved in fellowship. They don't ignore their congregations and teachings and in prayer. And there is no substitute for the continued steadfastness and proper biblical doctrine. That's the results. All right. That, my friend, is a first century soteriology, the doctrine of salvation for you. And that's that's it. That's it in a nutshell. That is it. So I am going to play Odin Fong's testimony for you. And as you listen to this 10 minute clip. Um, I want you to listen for those things, how he called out to Christ, how Christ revealed himself to him, how he repented right then and there, and how he was baptized in his name. 
And then he changed. He forever changed. Then he went and continued in fellowship. Then he learned doctrine. He did everything just like the first century salvation that I just read you did. And he didn't know what to do because it's God who does it. It's the Holy Spirit who does it. So after the testimony, the song will play. So I'm going to say good night right now and God bless. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again when the Lord gives, gives us something else. All right. Bye-bye. Something that I rarely do anymore because of the fact that I can't remember it. <laughs> I remember the good things. Um, I was raised in Hollywood, although I look Chinese, I'm really not. I'm actually a Hollywoodite. My parents were both motion picture actors. My father, you know, was a motion picture actor, and my mother um, raised in a Hollywood family and grew up around Hollywood and Beverly Hills with all the movie stars and sat on the the knee of most of the biggest uh, movie stars that have lived, Um, people like, you know, uh, Burt Lancaster and Gregory Peck and June Allison and Fred Astaire and those are people that I grew up with at our house parties and uh, hanging around my dad's restaurants. But I was one of those people that even though I had, uh, I seemed to have everything, you know, the, the, the wealthy house at the top of the Hollywood Hills overlooking uh, all of Los Angeles and, and uh, basically, you know, being raised kind of like a spoiled child with reservation. I, um, I came to a place where I realized that everyone around me, regardless of how high they climbed their ladders, they were never, ever content. They were never happy. And I was raised in a family where we didn't really know anything about God. We didn't believe in God. Our background was basically listening to my father um, teach us little, his own philosophy and also a little bit of Chinese philosophy in there, here and there. So we We always just believed, like everybody else, that we were born into the world by accident through a cosmic explosion that happened eons ago, and a giant burp happened in the universe, and then everything came into being, and we were just going to do whatever we could to make our little dent on the planet and then go our way. But something was hardwired into my heart early on that caused me to really uh, question these things. And so early on, I, I basically kind of just dropped out of the whole Hollywood, Beverly Hills, uh, Los Angeles scene and moved down to Laguna Beach. And at the time, uh, this is during the counterculture revolution, the 60s, uh, where the uh, African Americans were fighting for, for equal rights and uh, the SDS, the Students for a Dem- Democratic Society, were, were in full, full bore. But there was another movement happening at the time, and that was a enlightenment through the usage of psychedelic drugs. And Coming from Hollywood, you know, I started smoking uh, pot when I was pretty young, and, but never experimented with anything harder than, than that until uh, I got out of high school. And after I left high school, I moved away from my home and started to experiment with psychedelic drugs. And it was during the time I was studying, uh, you know, the, the usage of uh, psychedelic drugs to find yourself and to, to find some sort of a a relationship with a type of God that I started to run into people who were very religious people. So I, I would study with people that were Tibetan Buddhists. I would study, I helped uh, establish the Hare Krishna temple in Laguna Beach um, and also worshiped with them and studied the Bhagavad Gita with the president of that particular house, uh, a self-realization fellowship, Paramahansa Yogananda's people. Uh, these are all things that go way over most of your heads because you're too young to remember any of these things or even hear about them. But there was one uh, psychologist, I mean, he was a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Timothy Leary. You've probably heard about him in your, in your infamous parts of your history book. Um, I, when I came down to Laguna Beach, I uh, became part of the subculture, and uh, I was befriended because of my guitar playing mostly and, and singing, by some musicians who lived out on the Laguna Canyon. And so I went out there to jam with them, and I, and I was kind of adopted into the Timothy Leary family. We, they called themselves the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. 
And the Brotherhood of Eternal Love on the outside looked like just a bunch of wild little hippie people running around with really long hair. Like if you, if you see that old picture of me that comes up on the screen, it's a little embarrassing because I was probably 200 pounds lighter then and had hair, you know. But um, it, it, uh, behind the scenes, um, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love was basically responsible for manufacturing most of the, the psych- psychedelic drugs, LSD and, and other forms of psychedelic drugs that uh, were being distributed all over the world. And I became a part of that family. And Timothy uh, got arrested early on, and so I used to take care of his wife, Rosemary. Rosemary had connections to everyone. In fact, she was like my backstage pass to any concert back in those days. I'd walk with her up to a Moody Blues concert, and they just opened the doors because she was uh, Dr. Leary's wife. But um, in that in that role, I had basically just found myself elevated into the same kind of funny place in society. But this is in the subculture of the society where we had uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to play with every single day because of the amount of drugs that we were uh, manufacturing and selling and import, you know, I used to smuggle marijuana across the border down here in Mexico uh, regularly and we were so rich we could, we actually used to light our joints with hundred dollar bills to blow people's minds. But the, the point that I'm trying to make is that we got to the very pinnacle of where we were and there was nothing there. You know, all the movie stars and the rock stars and all the people that we hung out with when I was growing up, you get to the top of the ladder, there's nothing there, and you see people like just totally blitzing out and doing funny things like you see in the media today. In the hippie movement, it was the same way. And so I finally decided that I was going to uh, really find out if there really was a God, and I, I took a, uh, a vial of what was just the pure content of our product out to the high desert and snorted it all. It was about 150 doses of what, they, what we called Sunshine LSD. And uh, what transpired after, I can't even really explain. I do know that they couldn't resuscitate me. They couldn't get me breathing again. My heart stopped beating. And I did, yes, I did have one of those uh, after or out-of-the-body experiences to a certain extent where I basically was in a place of darkness. And so everything that I had learned in the past told me that what I should do is look for the light. Look for the light, and then you're going to go into your next incarnation. You'll just be reincarnated over and over again until you get it right. You know what I mean? It sounds fun, doesn't it? And so I'm looking for the light. I'm looking for the light. There's no light. It's just total darkness, total blackness. And all of a sudden, I started to realize that I was just in darkness forever, and I was a conscious living entity living within that darkness. And as I started to succumb to it, I started to to sense the presence of other souls that were in that same place, screaming and crying out in agony. And all of a sudden, I started to realize that I was one of those voices. And I remember I, I, I invoked every single name that you can imagine, every, every uh, guru that I had studied under, all of their gods, every deity, every uh, you know, demigod that I could remember their name, and nothing happened. And the very last name that I cried out to, because I never wanted to be a Christian, was the name of Jesus. I said, Jesus, if you're real, save me. If you're real, save me. And I was screaming it at the top of my lungs. You you couldn't bear it if I were to start screaming right now. And all of a sudden in that darkness, the darkness began to like quake. Like the whole universe was shaking and there were flashes of light and uh, brighter and brighter and brighter. And I actually came to uh, in the middle of the desert and I was was alive. I was breathing. And there was uh, a, a man standing in front of me whose countenance was so bright that I had to avert my whole, my eyes and my whole body away from him. And uh, it was almost like it, it was noontime and the sun was shining up above and this person and the, the image and outline of this person was so bright that I couldn't look. And, but even when I turned around and I started to try to bury myself under the sand to get away from the sight of this person, I could still see him. And then I heard a voice that I'll never forget. I still remember it today. It makes me cry and shiver and rejoice and laugh all at the same time. It sounded like the sound of many waters. It sounded, it filled every single molecule in the air, and he basically just said this. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I remember that after I heard those words, uh, I waited for a long time, and then I turned around, and, and it was gone. The, the, uh, all the, there were little flashes of light and everything. And, you know, I went back home, and I remember that... Um, 
I told some of the people about the experience, and they thought I just had a big psychedelic experience. And, and, and my old brethren from the Brotherhood that are still alive today say that Odin flipped out on LSD and became a Jesus freak and never came back. That's my reputation. Um, and, and it is true. They, they waited for me for years to come back. I still lived in Laguna, but what, it, what ended up happening was I met some people from Calvary Chapel after my conversion, and they would come down and uh, play music with me and preach in my backyard right in the middle of Laguna Canyon where the whole brotherhood lived. And this is a secret society that didn't want any strangers in the canyon. We had three or 400 people coming out every week to listen to people preach the gospel in the backyard. And, and so um, all this to say... It's been over pretty close to 37 years now that I first came to Calvary Chapel and, and met, met Pastor Chuck. And um, just, if you would just give Jesus a chance, if you just give Jesus an opportunity to come into your heart and to show you that he's real, he will. And it doesn't matter if you're young or old or if you're on the edge of death or if you're still living and breathing. If you just open up your heart, he will come in and you'll never be the same. I can attest to that. I'm living proof that with all of my wildness, God has taken me and transformed me into a whole different creature and creation, and it's only by the grace of God and because of his love for me and for you and for all of us. God bless you guys tonight. Jesus Christ and Him crucified for me.